24. As I said, it's, it's, just, it's difficult to develop a sermon series in the summer, so we're going to be looking at some different psalms, and just uh, we'll be hither, there, and yonder, and we're going to begin this with Psalm 24. Several years ago, I was on a plane, and I was sitting next to a woman. I'd say she was about 50 years old, and um, we got into our flight. We started making some conversation. She asked me what I did, and I said, I'm a pastor. And uh, you, sometimes that just kills it right there when you're, when you're talking to people. And, uh, and I have these friends, and I know other ministers that have these unbelievable spiritual conversations on flights. I, I, I could count my conversations like that on half of one hand. Uh, but this, this was actually one of them. She was not put off when I told her that I was a pastor. And so she started to ask me about the particulars of what I did. And so she, the, she raised this question. She said, look, here's what I want to know. Let's say you've got this kind of uh, this spectrum of all of humanity. And like over here, you've got uh, Mother Teresa. Like at that time, she was still alive. You've got Mother Teresa, and you know she's getting in. And then like on this end, you've got, I don't know, Adolf Hitler. And you know he's not, not getting in. Where's the cutoff? And it was, such a, it was just such a fine-tuned way to, to frame the question. There are at least two psalms that ask that same question. And this psalm that we're about to look at is one of them. That, that in effect is asking the same question. Who gets in? Who gets to live with God in His favor forever? The occasion, uh, it's generally agreed by scholars, and, and I would, as a pastor, I would agree, that the occasion of this psalm is early on in the reign of King David. The psalm is written by King David, as a lot of the psalms are. And he has established his home base, you might say, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not always owned by God's people. It was built by the Jebusites. But they had conquered Jerusalem, and David had established it as the city where he would be. And so he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem for the first time. It had been with the tabernacle in another town, and now that is making its way to Jerusalem. And so the Ark of the Covenant, which, if you saw the movie, you know, is this gold-covered chest and, and was completely identified with the presence of God in a special way. And the Ark is making its way right up to the door, the gates of Jerusalem. Now, here's the thing to understand, and this is not so much drawing from the movie as from actually the Scriptures. If this chest came into proximity with you or came into your town, it could kill you. It could curse you. Or really, we shouldn't say it. The God who so completely identified with it. But on the other hand, you could find yourself incredibly blessed. Now, how can that be? That on the one hand, you've got this God who manifesting through this, this ark, this chest, can show great severity. And on the other hand, can show great blessing and generosity. How do you make those go together? And that's the other question that David is asking. The first one is, who gets in? Who gets to live there for other, forever? But the second question is, who is this king of glory? Who is this God? That if you go to be with him forever, who is he? 
Those are the questions. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask now that You would take the perfect food of Your Word and feed Your sheep. We pray that those who come here very disturbed in their hearts would be comforted by the Gospel. We pray that those who come too comfortable in themselves that you would disturb, not simply to be severe, but that they might find comfort elsewhere, even in your Son. And we ask this in His name. Amen. A week from tomorrow, uh, both my sons are headed to camp for four weeks. And uh, this is a camp. I never camped there myself, but I worked there a couple of summers. And uh, my second summer that I worked at this camp, something happened about midway through the summer. And, uh, you know, a camp is just like this little biosphere. It just kind of has its own little life and identity. It can almost be like a little country in itself. And, and this event really sent shockwaves through the camp that summer. One of the inflexible rules of this camp is absolutely no smoking. Uh, besides the fact that it's just, you know, problematic for young boys to be smoking is just the whole thing about, you know, you're in the woods and it's the summer and it's dry and there's just a bunch of reasons why you just cannot do that. Zero tolerance, period. Well, about halfway through the summer, there was a young man. He had camped there he, um, and he had just had some bumpy things in his family. He had some bumpy, bumpy experiences at camp, but he was excited about coming back and, um, and it was going to be his last summer at camp and, and we had really kind of heard more about this camper. And uh, so he got there. I remember him getting off the bus. I remember he was wearing cowboy boots. I remember him hugging the director of the camp. He was there for a while. And uh, 20 years later, I still remember, this was on a Sunday afternoon. During some free time, he and some guys, they walked uh, a little ways offside of camp to a state park nearby. And they smoked. And they got caught. And I remember the sight that night, and just word about this just spread very quickly. 
And I remember the sight, after all the prepping about, you know, he's had a tough time with his family, but we're glad he's here, we want him to have a good summer. The sight of him hugging the director goodbye and being put on the bus, one guy on a bus, and driving out that night, gone. It, and it was such a juxtaposition of this director loved this kid. He was the one telling us on the front end about uh, why he was excited about him coming, why we need to you know, give him the TLC that he needs. And he was the one saying, this is inflexible. You're gone. Same man. Now, in, in a very pale, pale, small way, that's a picture of God. That on the one hand, in the Bible, you see Him extend incredible severity at times. And sometimes through the Ark of the Covenant. And great blessing and generosity too. And the way our minds tend to work is we want to say, well, which is it? You know? Is He all severe and powerful and may lower the boom? Or is He gracious and kind and patient? And the Scriptures say, yes. So here's what I want to look at. I want to look at these questions that David is asking. Who is it that gets in to live with a God like that? He's using the ark coming into the city as a picture of what would it be like to come into the Jerusalem that lasts forever, heaven, and to be with Him forever in His immediate presence. So there's a question and answer, all right? Here's the question, verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? You know, Jerusalem over and over in the Bible, it talks about it as a mountain or a hill, you know, the, the, uh, Mount Zion, things like that. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? And that Hebrew for stand doesn't just mean stand up and be okay, but it means stand steadfast. Be there and be comfortable in your own skin and be secure and safe forever. All right, that's the question. Who gets to do that? The answer is verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And then look at verse 5. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, in those two verses, David is showing us things about God. A couple of things. On the one hand, his requirements are inflexible. They are inflexible. He does not suggest obedience. He commands it and he requires it. Now, again, there's all kinds of different backgrounds and some of you have had lots of Christian teaching and some of you may have had little to none. Let's make sure we're on the same page about this. It is a huge deal in the Bible that we cannot be saved by our obedience. That we cannot be saved by our good works. And so when you hear this, you might say, well, yeah, but I mean, you can't be saved by your works, so I just kind of think that's like an Old Testament thing that faded away. All right, now, put the brakes on. When a young man once came up to Jesus and knelt down in front of him and looked up at him and said, good teacher, what must I do to, in to inherit eternal life? Jesus could have said to that young man, you just believe in me and follow me and you'll have eternal life. That is not what Jesus said. And I'm telling you, that's as open a door for ministry as I've ever 
heard of is someone kneeling in front of you saying, looking up, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know what Jesus said? You know the commandments? Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, honor your father and mother. Just do that and you'll live. And strictly speaking, he was right. If you want to know what you have to do to inherit eternal life, all you have to do is keep the requirements of God flawlessly. Because if you're going to pass through the gates of His presence, the admission price, you might say, is perfect obedience. Because there is only perfection in His home. He dwells there. Everything around Him reflects what He is like. All right, there's that. But on the other hand, he's saying, but that person that we're talking about, he receives blessing from God, that God loves to bless. Okay, so there's that juxtaposition. Inflexible requirements, severe when they are broken, and he loves to bless. Now, I want you to, here's a little Old Testament background. Those things, very likely, were very fresh on David's mind. If you read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, it talks about the actual logistics of getting the Ark of the Covenant from this other town to Jerusalem. And this is when David didn't have to hide out in the wilderness and run away from King Saul who's trying to kill him. He's, just, he's going public as king. He's establishing his monarchy. And this is the icing on the cake. It's the Ark of the Covenant to be there. The requirements were that only the Levites were to carry the Ark of the Covenant. And they were supposed to carry it on these poles on their shoulders. And I guess just for pragmatic reasons, instead of doing that, David and his followers, they put the Ark of the Covenant on an ox cart. And it was pulled by oxen. There are two men walking on both sides of it. And they start making their way down the road to Jerusalem. And there are sacrifices and they're singing, and they're dancing. In fact, it talks about them dancing hard when this happened. It's completely festive. Where they're going down the road celebrating, man, the hard times are largely behind us. Going down the road, and the ox hit this rough patch on the road, and, it, and they stumbled. And it rocked the cart. And the Ark of the Covenant begins to tip over and is going to hit the ground. And it tipped to the side of a guy named Uzzah. And Uzzah did... What any of us would have done instinctively if we had been in that situation, what would you have done? You would have thrown your hand up there to stop it. And the second that he did that, he was struck dead on the road. And the text is very intentional in saying, not that you know, the ark hit him and killed him, the Lord struck him down. And so you just picture this, this festive thing, the music starts to die down and the dancing stops and there's a dead man in the road next to the ark. And it was very troubling to David. This goes from celebration to funeral. And he's baffled by it, and they didn't know what to do. And so they took the ark of the covenant to the home of a guy named Obed-Edom. And, and I don't want to be flippant, but you picture how that was explained as they bring it into his house. You know, a guy touched this, it killed him. So keep this here at your house. You know, here's police tape. Uh, block off a room. Do, do something. But it's, and it says this twice in the Old Testament that Obed-Edom, he brings the Ark of the Covenant into his house. At one point, the Ark of the Covenant was in a guy's house. And so what happens? 
Obed-Edom struck dead. Everybody in the house gets sick. It says that for the entire time that the ark was in the house of Obed-Edom, his entire household was blessed. The whole household. Things were better for him and his wife. It says later in the Old Testament they had all these sons, which would be a manifestation of wealth in that culture. The servants, the slaves. I mean, the whole household does better when the ark of the Lord God shows up. Again, the way our hearts and minds tend to work is we want to say, well, which is it? Which one of those is really what he is about? It's both. But you cannot bypass his severity. You cannot bypass the inflexible requirements to get to the blessing part. Do not forget the answer to the question of verse 3. The answer is verse 4. And one of the reasons that makes me think that this was written about the ark coming in is of all the ways for King David to explain who is the man who can live in the presence of God. The first thing he says in terms of what kind of person, he who has clean what? Hands. And Uzzah, even when he was trying to do the right thing, did not. Why? Because he was such an immoral man? No, it's because his hand was attached to the same thing that's inside of us, an unclean heart. That he made the assumption that any of us would have made is that this is cleaner than the dirt. And the reality is the dirt has never rebelled against God, and we have death. Let me... Let me ask you this. See, the, the gospel, and I really think the Bible itself, will either be boring to you or, or will grow boring to you if this doesn't create something of an inner tension and crisis for you, that God is very, very holy. But He's very, very kind. If that doesn't wrestle you around, the gospel will not mean much to you. Let, let, let me ask you some questions. It talks about, you know, after the clean hands part in verse 3, says, who does not swear deceitfully. Um, if you have joined this church, let me, let me cite some questions that you were asked and you said yes to. Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ? How would those who live with us respond to that? Those who see what we are like behind closed doors those who know something of our private behavior, would they say that we are keeping that promise, that vow? Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? What would the elders and deacons say if you're a church member about you? And as I say, when we admit people into the church, and as I say when I do our foundations class, that question about supporting the church, the best of your ability. We do not use that as a bat to hit people with, but the question means something. And if you remember, you answered yes. Uh, how about this? While this is fresh, uh, fresh on our minds from a few minutes ago, which I almost forgot. If you have brought a child to be baptized and you were asked... Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God that you will endeavor to set before them a godly example, that you'll pray with and for them, that you'll teach them the doctrines of our holy religion? Have we? 
I know that we have single, married, divorced, all in this room. But let me ask this of those who are married. We promised things like, I won't just, you know, be like a roommate with you, but I will love you. I will honor you. I will cherish you. I will care for you. Have we? If the answer is no, then strictly speaking, when the question of verse 3 is asked, who may ascend, who may live there, then the answer for us is, not us. And if you run past that, if we run past that, the gospel means very little. Strictly speaking, there's only been one person that verse 4 really described. And it's Jesus of Nazareth. And the irony is that, yeah, He did go through those gates. We call that Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. But that week does not end with Him living on the hill of the Lord. How does that week end? It ends with Him being taken from that hill to another hill. What's the other hill? The place of the skull. To bear the punishment that those who break all the terms of verse 3 deserve. Now, let me tell you something that struck me in studying for this. I kind of expected that as I studied Psalm 24, and it talks about these gates of Jerusalem and the king coming in, you know, open up for the king coming in. I thought, you know what? I bet that Christians through the centuries have read Psalm 24, and I bet it's made them think of the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. And you know what? Overall, no. That through the centuries, and I don't mean like back to the 1800s, I mean way back in the history of the church, what Psalm 24 has reminded Christians of is the ascension of Jesus Christ. Because if there are any gates that should be closed to us, it's not so much the gates of Jerusalem, it is the gates of heaven. And Jesus comes after, like we said, He says, it is finished at the end of His time of being on that other hill. When He's raised from the dead and He ascends into heaven, whatever He meant by it, He comes as the high priest with it before the Father and says, this is for all who believe in Me who do not have clean hands. All who claim my name who do not have pure hearts. All who follow me and love me, who have broken all their vows. This is for them. And, you know, here's yet another installment where I'm admitting to you that things I've read over and over and over, that sometimes I notice for the first time when I'm getting ready for a sermon, verse 5 jumped off the page at me in a way it never had. Because what does he say? Verse 5, this man will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, note the grammar that the man who can live with God, he's not just given blessing by God, he's given righteousness. In other words, all the things that God requires to live in His presence, He has to give to the person who comes to live with Him. 
His severity, His inflexible standards can fall on the one man who lived out verse 4. And that man can let you walk into the gates and feel all of God's goodness and how inclined He is to bless us. You know, I say this every Advent. The hymns that are supposed to make us happy at Christmas with every passing year are the ones that make me teary-eyed. And if there's one that should make you feel happy, it's um, good Christian men rejoice. I mean, you should picture like little, I don't know, British men in the 1800s with rosy cheeks and some little accordion thing and they're singing in the snow. And the words just wear me out. And I had never really thought about these words until working on this psalm, but the, the verse about he has opened heaven's door. Because it was closed. When God stationed the cherubim on the edge of the Garden of Eden, when He cast out Adam and Eve, on that day, and from that day, the gates of heaven were closed to us who break our vows, who don't have clean hands and pure hearts. But when He said, it is finished, He has opened heaven's door. And then what's the next line? And man is blessed evermore. God's inclination to bless. But I don't want to stop there. I want to end with this. God is so good, this king, this this king of battle, that He doesn't just bless you with a righteousness that's outside of yourself. Theologians talk about an alien righteousness. That doesn't mean extraterrestrial righteousness. It means a righteousness that you did not produce, that comes from outside of you, that He gives you, and gives you credit for. We call that justification. But God is so good, and He is such a blessing God, that He goes to work to produce a righteousness inside of us, to actually change what we are like from the inside out. And the Bible calls that sanctification. Now, I'm going to be brief here. All kinds of different people in this room, but most of us would, would, would default into being one of two types of people. We're either like the prodigal son in that parable, or we're like the older brother in that parable. If you're a prodigal, then for whatever reason, you're a push-the-envelope person. You're a test-the-limits person. And probably your struggle in the Christian life is going to be to say, hey, it's a beautiful thing. We're cleaned, we're redeemed, we're in Christ, it's all good. And to just kind of do what you want. Like, isn't it great that we don't have to be all freaked out about obeying God anymore? Because Jesus took care of it. Or, and this is a lot of us, this is the man in the blazer up front, is the older brother. And the older brother is, you know what, we've got to be serious about this. These are God's requirements. We've got to get this under control. We've got to do the right thing. And what's implicit is because if we don't, he will lower the boom. And I want to say to all of us, go back to the gates. The only way those gates could have stayed closed that day in Jerusalem, gates can't, gates have no mind and will of their own. They only move as people move them. The only way those gates could have stayed closed is if the gatekeepers had not opened them, which means the only way the gates would have stayed closed is if the hearts of the gatekeepers were closed to God. But they opened to God, and they opened the gates. 
And I don't, I don't mean this in a corny way. I don't mean this in a simplistic way. But at the end of the day, the reason that the Scriptures, our copies of them, stay closed so much is because our hearts are closed to Him. It is not time management. It is not organization. It is that our hearts are closed to Him. That the reason that we do not pray and open the closet of our home or whatever the equivalent of that is in your home is because our hearts are closed to Him. And here's the thing. If you're a prodigal, hear Him saying, I call you to be holy. I didn't liberate you from slavery to sin to walk back into sin and be re-enslaved. I liberated you to keep the law of perfect freedom. I liberated you to reflect what I am like. I want you to have clean hands because I am the clean God with clean hands. I want you to be pure in heart because I am the pure God. I want you to always keep what you say you're going to do because I always keep what I say I'm going to do. I want you to reflect what I'm like. But if you're the older brother and the Christian life is starting to just, if you were honest, is starting to bore the rip out of you, Because it's just more, more, more to do or dad will get mad at us. Listen to the psalm saying, look, the earth is the Lord's, friends, and the fullness thereof. All the food, all the desserts, all the chocolate, all the good music, all the dancing, all the friendships, all the vacations, all the urban stuff you love, all the rural stuff you love. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. Do you think He's stingy? Do you think He's a bully? Do you think He is a tyrant? Do you think He invented the earth to be a giant pressure cooker for religious people? Look at how good He is. The mountains, the animals, your favorite music, your favorite friend, your favorite place. Open the gates of your heart. I mean, my prayer, not that it's about my prayer, but I'll tell you my, what my prayer has been. My prayer has been, man, what if this summer was either the summer where you, I wish I could just talk, just me and you, where this is either going to be the summer that you let him in for the first time and he cleanses you. That justification. And, it's, and it becomes a summer that was the turning point for the rest of your life. Everything was before that, and now everything is after that. Or that this will be a summer where instead of us regrouping in August going, y'all, summer was crazy, I'm serious. And you know, like you hardly remember what you did. <laughs> is that you look back on these two or three months and say, man, I mean, there were good times, there was off time, there was work, you know, and it was hot and blah, blah, blah. But man, God came near. God came near when I knelt down and did verse 6, where you seek the face of the God of Jacob. I got to end with this. One of our church members is going to France tomorrow, so this is all the more relevant. Uh, Henry V, awesome Shakespeare play. If you've never seen the movie with Kenneth Branagh, Branagh, however you say his name, it's really good. Um, Big thing that happens in Henry V, England and France go to war. England wins. Sorry to give that away, but that's going to be relevant here. And as part of uh, Henry's victory, he's going to marry the daughter of the king of France, and her name is Catherine. He calls her Kate. 
And so the end of the play is he comes to Kate to ask her to marry him. And they hardly know each other at all. He barely speaks any French, and she barely speaks any English. And so they're trying to communicate about getting married. And so he's reasoning with her about how great it would be if she married him and why she should. And she's giving him the Heisman. And Catherine says this. And Shakespeare wrote, he wrote this like someone who speaks French trying to speak English. So she says, Is it possible that I should love the enemy of France? And Henry says, No. It is not possible you should love the enemy of France, Kate. But in loving me, you should love the friend of France. For I love France so well that I will not part with a village of it. I will have it all mine. And Kate, when France is mine, and I am yours, then yours is France, and you are mine. Christ Jesus, King and Head of the Church, mighty in battle. You should see how He's described in Revelation. He comes to us individually and as the church and says this, I love you so much, I want all of you. I don't just want you to let me in the gates of your heart on Sunday morning. I want all of your time and all of your body and all of your soul and all of your friendships and all of your work and all of your leisure. I love you so much, I have to have all of it. And here's the thing. If He gets all of it, and He is ours, then all of that is ours too. Open the gates of our hearts, Lord God. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, You who ascended into heaven with all that You had accomplished on our behalf, we praise You that You are the one who has clean hands and pure heart, who does not swear deceitfully, who always does what is right, and you are the King of glory, mighty in battle. We pray that you would have your way with us, that we might be cleansed, that we might be brought into the gates at the end, that we would be different, that we would walk in your ways that we would reflect the ways of our God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.